if I haven't met you, um, I love I love how people love each other and love to connect. That makes me very happy. Um, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Claude. I'm the uh, pastor and lead church planter of uh, Redeemer Church. We're a new church plant here in the city, um, and we are here to uh, help people follow Jesus and hear the gospel and grow into followers of Him. And for to for people who are wondering about Jesus and Christianity and the gospel, to create an environment where they can come and learn about those things clearly. Um, and uh, yeah, we hope to be a, a blessing and a positive impact for God's glory here in Somerville. So we're a new church plant. We're, we're excited that you're here with us. Um, right in front of you, if you look down at your kneecap real quick, you'll see in front of you um, on the chair back there, you'll see a connect card and a pen. If you're here for the first time, thank you for coming. We're glad that you're here. Um, and if you wouldn't mind just putting your name and your email um, on there and leaving it there, we'd love to reach out to you and, uh, and thank you for, for coming and joining us. Um, so you can do that if you're um, like here regularly and you want to get more involved, you want to start helping and volunteering to help uh, do what we do as a church community, you can fill out that card and check off one of the uh, one of the boxes and we can get you plugged in in the appropriate area as well. Um, so I want to keep that in front of you. Also, we have um, at the Connect table, we have a couple of books. All of those books are out there for you to take. That's actually not stealing. Um, just take it and, and leave. Um, not, not now, but at the end, take it and leave. That's a gift from us to you. Um, particularly if, uh, if the series that we're doing in today's message, sermon, talk, piques some interest or is very confusing or uh, arises something, definitely grab the book there, uh, Reason for God. Um, I'm going to try to do in about 35 minutes what we could do in um, several weeks. So, so I can't cover everything, so, but, if, but if things get, um, interests get piqued, Grab that book, Reason for God, um, that'll talk more about this topic. Maybe, um, maybe the person that you came with or a friend that you have here, um, ask them to read through that with you or, or ask them um, their thoughts on what we're going to talk about today. And then also, um, the series that we're doing, uh, you'll find uh, cards that lay out the topics also at the um, Connect table. So you grab those, you can um, grab them just for your own information, but also hopefully to give to people that you would like to invite or think that would be interested um, in coming. So... Let me, um, let me go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump into the second message for our, from our new series, Questioning Christianity, which I am really, really excited about. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump into it. God, um, first we just thank you for, uh, for your grace, for your goodness to us. God, that you are um, compassionate um, and abounding in steadfast love. And God, you've shown that, um, that love to us through the work of Jesus and what he's done on the cross through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Um, and God, we just ask that now as we get ready to turn to your word, that you would help us to be humble before um, your word, before the Bible. Uh, we also ask for your help, that you would give us understanding of this passage. God, And um, I ask also for your help personally, God, that you would give me a, a lot of grace and, um, and clarity um, to communicate faithfully and clearly um, on this really, uh, really important uh, question that we're going to look at today. And most of all, God, we ask that... Um, that Jesus would really be lifted up, that we would walk away not impressed with um, good music or um, eloquence um, or anything like that, but that we would really walk away contemplating and, um, and really in awe of Jesus and, and what he's done for us on our behalf. So God, would you make that so? Um, help us to, to dial in and to, uh, to have understanding here on this all-important topic. We pray for your glory. We pray it also for our good. In your name, amen. 
So typically what we do, um, what we typically do at Redeemer is um, through like our teaching and our preaching on, on our Sunday gatherings or Sunday services, we usually go through books of the Bible um, in order and, and kind of do that expositionally. What we're actually though doing um, now is we're doing a little bit of a different series. Um, and as a church, uh, we believe that the gospel, the good news of Christianity, we believe that that is for uh, the religious, that's for the irreligious, and that's also for the skeptical. Um, because at the end of the day, what people need to investigate and what pe all people need continuously is the good news of Jesus. And so uh, while all our sermons um, point to Jesus and get to Jesus, from time to time, we like to do series that really tackle um, some of the questions that people have when it comes to Jesus so that we can speak to those questions and hopefully create a clear opportunity um, or dialogue for people to understand the gospel message clearly and begin to wrestle with it, investigate it, ask questions of it, um, and do all of those things. And so that's what we're doing with this series. Last week we did the question, um, how can I know God exists? So that's online if you are interested in that and want to check that out. Um, this week we're going to do uh, the question of exclusivity, the exclusivity of Jesus. Um, that a lot of people, when they begin to explore Christianity, they look at Jesus' words in the Bible, or they look at the New Testament um, portion of the Bible, and they begin to see what the Bible talks about. They begin to see things like the passage we're going to look at today, and they're going to say, well, wait a second. Jesus is saying this, he's saying that he's the way to God. How can there only be one way to God? It's a question that people will ask a lot. Um, so they ask a question on this topic of exclusivity. And usually, this is a topic that creates confusion. But I think if we look at this passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see that this topic, if rightly understood, is actually meant to comfort. And so that's the question that we're going to look at today. This, this question of how can there be one way to God. How come Jesus says that he's exclusive and what in the world are we supposed to do with that? That's the question we're going to look at today. Um, the reason why this series is really important um, is because of a couple of things. Um, because you'll find, if you look at trends in our country, you'll find that both religious or spiritual faith, however you want to term it, faith is growing at the same time that skepticism is growing. You'll find that both of those things are on, on the rise. Um, you'll also find that in order to, or the places that you'll see people on different sides of faith and unbelief, skepticism and uh, religion, you'll find the places where people are having real conversations that are truly civil, that are truly honest, but that are truly loving and friendly, you'll find that those people understand or are trying to understand where the other person is coming from. When you understand where someone is coming from or why they don't believe or why they believe what they do believe, the opportunities for real conversation that's civil, that's loving, and that's respectful, even though you're different, can actually happen. So one of the big reasons we're doing this series is to allow us to understand from both sides of the aisle and to promote real conversation and real respect for people who do believe and people who do not believe in Jesus. Because we're the type of church that wants to see both of those types of people here in our community processing and learning. Um, and also, um, if you are a Christian, we're doing this series because you need to know you've been called into a reasoned faith, not a blind faith. We're also doing this series for all of our, our friends and all of my friends that I know have asked me a million of these questions or tried to answer them. And I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm going to talk about it for 35 minutes. So why don't you come through and uh, come here? So that's, that's all... Um, uh, preface, and let's jump in to uh, this passage. We're going to look at uh, John's Gospel in the New Testament, chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have it on the screen, and if your Bible is digital, you can turn it on. 
So let me, um, let me read the first couple of verses. This is Jesus speaking uh, to his, uh, his boys, his crew, his, his disciples. John 14, uh, 1 through 7. Jesus speaking. He says, let, your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So that's the first section that we're going to look at. A couple things that are happening here, a little bit of context. Um, at the end of chapter 13, which was obviously before 14, um, what has happened is that Jesus is explaining to his disciples. He's saying, hey, I've been around with you guys for, you know, for a year plus. We've been, we've been doing this stuff together. We've been doing ministry together. I'm going to go away at some point. Uh, he begins to tell them about his death. He begins to tell them, I'm going to die. By the way, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, I'm not going to do that. He's like, yes, you are. He has this back and forth. And he says, hey, I'm going to go away. And the disciples begin to get stressed. They begin to freak out because they're saying, wait, Jesus, you're going to leave us. You are the greatest person we've known. You're the person who's taught us the most about God. We are devoted our lives to you. We've left our jobs. We've left family. And you're going to leave. Later in this chapter, he's going to explain kind of what that means. But he's saying, hey, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm out of here. And they begin to stress out, which is why Jesus begins to say, hey, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, We don't have time to walk through all of the details of those first couple of verses. But Jesus is hinting at the fact that, hey, I'm going to go die. I'm going to open up this way so that you can be restored to God and that you're actually going to be with me um, eternally. He's he's referring to to heaven when he talks about the Father's home. Um, But basically, what the big thing that we need to see from this is disciples are stressed because Jesus is leaving. And Jesus is actually trying to comfort them by saying, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And more than that, you know the way. Right? That's what he says. Four, you know the way to where I'm going, so you don't need to be stressed out. Um, let's actually go try to understand why the disciples would be stressing here, because I think that's going to help us understand this really big topic in question. Um, they're worried and they fear that they're going to be utterly lost when Jesus leaves. Um, I don't know how many of you are like me, but if you are like me, you get lost pretty often. And the reason that you get lost, if you're like me, is because your phone dies and your phone is the only way that you know how to get around. Has anyone had that experience? You know, when we moved from GPS, there's only one person that's had that experience. Okay, two people, great. Still feel like an idiot. Can a few more people just raise their hands so I feel less stupid, even if you're lying? Okay, great. Um, power numbers, cool. So um, this happens to me all the time. This happened to me recently. I was in Harvard Square to print a couple things for a couple invite cards, and my phone died on the way back, and so I, I'm like, okay, I missed the one turn that I knew would take me home. And so now I'm like, man, you know what, Brain? It's, it's me and you. Like, we've, we've got to figure this thing out together because the iPhone is out of the equation. Um, so I'm like trying to figure out, okay, I missed my turn. How do I get there? Well, long story short, I end up in Belmont. Um, so I'm just like, this is, this is clearly not where I live. Like, this is, this is not the town that I reside in. So I end up in Arlington, then I end up in Belmont, and I'm really getting upset 
because um, I know like I need I need to get home. We've got some people coming over. Like I'm starting to like physically like grip the grip the steering wheel wheel tighter. Um, beginning to restrain myself from cursing at myself for being stupid. Like I'm I'm getting really stressed. Um, the disciples are feeling a heightened level of that. They're feeling a heightened level of that stress. And I want to show you, because my guess is all of you have felt a little bit of what the disciples are feeling here. Or if you maybe haven't felt that, or you don't want to admit that you felt that, you know people who felt that, right? Take the, take the analogy of me getting lost, right? Um, going from Harvard Square to my home and ending up in Belmont, genius. Take that, but compare that to the feeling of kind of a spiritual or existential lostness, where you feel like, you know that there's something out there meant for you. You know that there's something out there that's to guide you. You know that there's something out there that leads to deep fulfillment and deep meaning, but you can't quite get it and you can't quite put your finger on it. There's actually a German term for this. I'm going to butcher this, Johannes. Um, you'll have to correct me and rebuke me afterwards. Um, it's called Senschut, um, and it's this idea of longing for something that you just cannot get or have. Right? There's really actually, like in reading about this, there's actually no real way to translate the meaning of this into English. It's just like this inner aching in your heart where you know that there's something out there that will fulfill you. You just know that you're never really going to find it. An analogy for it is kind of thinking about like if you had a really good childhood and a really good family and a lot of great memories in your home, and then uh, you grow up, you move away, and then the home like burns down or your parents have to sell it and somebody comes and they buy it and they remodel it so it's completely different. You long to just be back in that old home in your room where you had those great memories, but you know there's no way that's ever going to come back. It's that type of longing. And what is really important here is the idea that Jesus is the way to God in verse 4. It's meant to actually comfort the disciples because Jesus is trying to tell them, you feel this existential angst in your heart. You feel this sense of, of lostness because I'm leaving. But guess what? I'm the way. There is a way, and I'm that way, which means you can have comfort because you know your searching and your longing is actually not in vain. Jesus is trying to comfort them. Right, imagine this. Imagine this kind of soul ache of maybe searching for deeper meaning, searching for God, searching for spiritual fulfillment, and just knowing that you're not able to grasp it. Imagine knowing that every time you encounter something transcendent, that you just don't know where the source of that is. So every time you have a great meal, you're like, this is amazing, and it just uh, uh, it evokes something in me that longs for something deeper. Every time you hear a great piece of music, but you know how you get that feeling of like, this music is so beautiful. This is so powerful. It's almost like a transcendent feeling. And you had that with music, right? You have those feelings. And what's behind those, I believe, is the sense of a transcendence, a sense of the spiritual, a sense of the source of where all good things come from, God himself. But if there is no way to him, you experience these things and you just experience a longing. You experience that feeling of when you have something on the tip of your tongue but you can't think of it, except it's not that. It's a spiritual ache and long in your heart. But Jesus is saying, there is comfort because I am the way. You can know that this searching, this longing is not in vain whatsoever. Right, And if we take it with what Jesus says in verse 2, this idea of home, Jesus is saying, hey, you're not lost. 
You're not on your own. Through me, through the way, I'm going to bring you home to God, both, um, both in the eternal sense, but also here and now through a spiritual life and connection through faith in me. That's what Jesus is saying here. And to believe in him there, to trust in him as the way, is to not have a troubled heart. Doesn't mean things are perfect and peachy, but what he's saying is that's the remedy for his disciples searching and longing. That's the remedy for our searching and longing for meaning. And here's part of why that is. I want you to look at the end of verse three. Jesus says, I will take you to myself. And then he says this, which is really interesting, that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. And then in two, he talks about his father's house. Here's why there's comfort in Jesus as the way. It means our searching is not in, in vain. But there's comfort in Jesus as the way to God because it means that through him, we can actually get true intimacy with God. Jesus as the way to God means that we can actually get true intimacy with God. Let me ask you this before I explain this. Have you ever experienced this in a relationship? Have you ever experienced a relationship where you have on one hand been completely vulnerable and at the same time felt completely loved. You ever experienced that in a relationship with somebody where you have been completely vulnerable, but that person that you've been vulnerable with completely loves you? Those are the most powerful relationships. Because what usually happens, the way we usually deal with people, is that we have to hide a vulnerability, we have to project something in order to get love, attention, or affection from them. But in a real deep relationship, you can be 100% vulnerable and still be 100% loved and embraced by that person. There's absolutely nothing like that. Now, 100% love doesn't mean they don't try to help you or whatever, but it means that they don't push you away. I remember the first time I really experienced this. The first time I experienced this was actually with my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, who is amazing. Um, Sorry, uh, not sorry, that's great. Um, I'll stop talking. This is bad. I'll stop now. Um, but this, I remember the first time I really experienced this. I was thinking about this this week because that's what Jesus is getting at here. And he's showing that he does this, that he offers this to us. I remember the first time I experienced that really deeply and profoundly was with uh, Kelsey when we were dating in college. Um, and we were in the car. You probably remember this. And Kelsey wanted me to open up to her about like my past and like mistakes that I've made and just bad decisions that I've made in my life, which are many. Um, and I was just really good at just keeping things close to my chest because... That's how I've operated for all of my life, for the 18 years up until that point. So to like be vulnerable and to actually open up with the things that have hurt me in life and the way that I've hurt other people was really difficult. And what she was offering me, though, it, which I, it was hard for me to see, she was offering me an opportunity and a context where she was essentially saying, you, Claude, can be as vulnerable with me as you've been with any other person, and I'm not going to turn you away. That's what she was offering to me. She was saying, I don't care who you've been with in the past. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care the way you've treated other girls. I don't care what your history is. I love you, and I'm not going to push you away. That's what she was saying to me. Now, if you've never felt that, it's really hard to step into that. Because you're wondering, is this, really, is this really what is being offered to me? <clears throat> That's such a rare thing. But that's what she was offering to me in that conversation. And that's been one of the biggest things in my life where I felt in relationship there and with her, fully known and vulnerable, but also still fully loved. And what Jesus is offering as the way is he's saying, hey, I want to be with you. 
Where I am, you may be also, that you can come into the Father's home, this relationship with God, this connection with God, this reunion with God who made us to, to know him and to enjoy him. Jesus is offering through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, what he's done on the cross. He's saying, I know everything about you. I know all of your flaws. I know all the ways that you've rejected me. I know all the ways you've turned away from God. I know you completely. I know you the way no one else knows you. And yet I am offering my love to you completely at the same time. That with God, through Christ, there is a way to be fully known and fully loved. That's what Christ is offering in the gospel. So let me ask you this before we move on quickly. Have you experienced this type of closeness with God? Or are you operating in a different category where you feel like you actually have to, um, you actually have to do certain things in order for God to kind of want to accept you? Or are you even maybe experiencing, some of you right now maybe are experiencing this, where you're like, I don't want to come near to God. I don't want to pray. I honestly don't really want to come to church, but someone wanted to come with me, so I had to. Like, whatever it might be, you may, are you even, like, pulling back from God because you're afraid of uh, coming near to him because of the ways that maybe you're messing up in your life or the way that you don't have things together? Are you essentially trying to mask your vulnerability before God right now? Because you think if you do that, then uh, you'll get closer to him. Or you think if you mask it, then he won't be as angry, right? If you're operating in any of those spheres, you don't understand what Jesus is offering. Grace, love, and acceptance through what he's done on the cross. That's the offer. So Jesus, as the way, as he's trying to do here, is meant to comfort the disciples. And it's actually meant to comfort us as well. Fully known and completely loved through Jesus, right? So that's the beauty of what this passage is laying out. But there's a couple things we also still need to see, right? This is beautiful, but I think there's still some questions that need to be answered about this topic. There's still some questions that need to be looked at when it comes to this idea or this truth that Jesus <coughs> is the exclusive way to God. Let's look at verse six. Let's look at Jesus's words where he talks about this. So he says this, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. These I am statements happen a lot in this particular book of the New Testament. They're ways to, uh, they're, they're referring to a passage in the Old Testament where God reveals himself as the I am. Um, and Jesus is, is basically saying, hey, I'm divine. Um, I, I, I'm the one, look to me, trust in me. And uh, real briefly, just what he's meaning by these words, the truth is essentially saying he's the truth because he's the one who reveals God. In John chapter one, it talks about no one has seen God, but, but Jesus has revealed him. Uh, he says he's the life briefly because um, he's the one who gives eternal life and also spiritual life to God, uh, to connect us to God here and now through faith in him. And then he says he's the way. He says that he's the mediator that God has sent to restore us back to God, that he's the one way that we are welcomed back to God, that we are reunited to God spiritually um, now in the present and also eternally, that where we've been cut off from God for not putting him at the center of our lives, Jesus is the one sent by God to undo that, to pay for that, to cancel that, and to bring us back into the arms of God the Father like a, like a child who's run away from home and is welcomed back and fully embraced. Notice this. Notice this, though. Jesus makes this claim, which, if we're going to be honest to a lot of people, this is really hard. For some of us in this room, this is really hard to hear in verse 6. Now, I want to show why this is a comforting thing, but this is a really hard thing, and that's understandable. He makes this big, big claim in 6. 
But then look what he says in 7, right? Philip says, hey, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, hey, it's me, man. It's me. And then, I don't know if he says, it's me, man. Maybe that's in the original. But he says, it's me. I'm the way. But notice he says, I'm the way. He shows that it's him only. But then in 7, he says, um, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Basically, he's saying, you, if you've known me truly, you would know that I'm divine. You would know that I am the way. But then look what he says at the end of 7. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. What's really interesting here is that Jesus is saying in 6, there's one way to God, and he's saying, hey, you kind of missed this in the first half of 7. But at the last half of 7, Jesus is saying this, you've missed that I'm the way, but guess what? Right now, you're seeing it. Right now, it's standing before you. Right now, you had the chance. Right now, the opportunity is here. The way is open. The path is there. I'm available. Come, believe, which is what he says in verse 1. So notice the kindness. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, I'm the way. Peace out. He's saying, I'm the way. Believe. Come on, let's do it. Trust in me. Follow me. (coughs) And that's the offer that he gives to us here and now. But six is still hard. Six is still a hard passage. Six is still a hard verse. Um, If we're going to be honest, and the way that I hear this from my friends that I get to have great conversations with, is like, this just seems really narrow. Seems really narrow that Jesus is the way to God. Seems really narrow. Seems like it'll produce a bunch of arrogant people. Seems like it's really intolerant. So what do we do with that? What is Jesus saying here? What does that mean? How do we understand that? I think his words in 6 is clear that he is the way. But how do we understand this? Um, the alternative, when people, when people see this or when people hear this, a lot of times the alternative is because this seems so narrow, what Jesus is saying, the alternative is to embrace this, um, uh, this idea that all paths lead to God. Right? That's, that's the typical alternative. If someone is going to express faith, they're, they're, and, and this is something that's very off-putting, the alternative is typically, this is off-putting, this is really narrow, this is really difficult to embrace, so I'm going to embrace a stance that, that all paths lead to God. Maybe that's where some of you are, maybe that's what some of you hold, and respectfully, I want to engage with that. Um, the thing is, is when people hear this and see that it seems narrow, their, their, their tendency is to move to a stance that seems the opposite. So it doesn't seem, doesn't seem narrow, it seems tolerant, it seems open, it seems more respectful, it seems more inclusive. The thing is, though, when you really think of the claim, I believe that all paths lead to God, it sounds humble, it sounds respectful, it sounds tolerant, but when you look beneath the surface, um, it's really actually none of those things. Respectfully speaking, it's really actually none of those things, and I want to try to show you this. Why? I want to show you this. Um, on the on uh, not the uh, one more slide and then one slide after that. Um, this is from Stephen Prothero. Um, wrote a couple books, Religious Literacy and God Is Not One. He's a professor at uh, Boston College, um, and he has a really helpful quote. And then I want to kind of try to walk through this a little bit. He says this. Um, he says this. He says it is comforting to pretend that all that the great religions make up one big happy family, but this sentiment, however well intentioned, is neither accurate nor ethically responsible. Faith in the unity of religions is just that faith, and he's using that pejoratively, he's using that in the negative sense. Um, it's just that faith, perhaps even, in a, uh, perhaps even a kind of fundamentalism. And the leap that gets us there is an act of the hyperactive imagination. It's a pretty strong quote, right? Which is why I quoted him, so I didn't have to say it. He said it. Um, right? This is, a, this is a pretty strong quote, which is, re- this is really interesting. Um, he's essentially saying that 
you have to kind of be missing the picture to really, with conviction, say, I believe all paths lead to God. And I want to try to work that out. And if this is, this is your stance, I'm trying to be helpful, trying to be faithful to what Jesus is, is saying in these texts historically um, and, and trying to have the uh, respectful way of laying this out. Um, so here, here's the thing. How can this be? How can this Prothero quote be? And here's what most people miss, is what you miss when you say all paths lead to God, uh, to say that, you have to neglect the distinct things that make every faith what they are. To say that all paths lead to God, you have to neglect and disrespect all the deeply held values and beliefs in each of those faiths. You essentially have to cover them up with the tarp and say, hey, you know what, they're actually, you know what, don't look under the tarp, don't look under the tarp, they're essentially all the same. Now, to be fair, if you just look at the surface there's a way that someone could say, hey, all religions are the same. But if you, if you actually just hop on like Wikipedia and look up a couple major religions, there's really no way you can, you can make that claim. And, and here's, here's why. Let me explain this, right? Let me explain this. To say all paths lead to God, it sounds loving, it sounds humble. I think that's why it appeals to many people, and I understand that. But beneath there, here's what's happening. Beneath that statement, at worst, there's an arrogance, and at best, there's an ignorance, let me, let me walk you through that, again, respectfully. Right? How, you, so you wonder, how can that be? Well, take, take Muslims, take Christians, and take Jews. Right? Um, if you take those, those three um, pillars of faith and religion in civilization, period, and this would be Reformed Jew, Judaism, or excuse me, Orthodox Judaism, not so much Reformed, but if you were to take those, right, they all essentially agree that there is a God who is pure and who will take account um, for our lives and how we live and how we treat others, right? But the remedy of how uh, forgiveness is secured or how a, this relationship is restored, the remedy is vastly different, right? Christianity is going to put forth Jesus. It's going to say, there's nothing you can do. Just admit that you can do nothing. Trust in what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. Trust, faith in Christ is the way. That's what Christianity upholds. What does uh, Islam uphold? A Muslim would say, follow the five pillars. Follow the five pillars of devotion, prayer, right? Ask Allah, pray, ask Allah for forgiveness, but, but live a life of devotion, right? Judaism would say, love God, love your neighbor, um, follow the, the, the ceremonial calendar and the sacrifices. They're going to give alternately different, distinctly different solutions to essentially um, what is pretty close to the same problem. Right? The problem's the same, but the solutions are vastly different. And here's the thing. Any Muslim you talk to will never say that their faith is the same as mine. Just as I would not say my faith is the same as theirs. They would uphold Jesus as a prophet. I would uphold Jesus as God. So to say that we're, that, that we're going to the same path or that we're, we're upholding and believing the same thing really does not compute. It, it really actually cannot compute. And what about this? What about, uh, what about Buddhism? I've talked about this with my good friend who is a Buddhist. Um, we meet and have great discussions. There's some things we, we agree, right? To believe Jesus is the way doesn't mean that there's not truth in other religions. It just means there's little pieces of it. So we can talk about selfishness and we can talk about some, some smaller things that we actually have, we actually agree on. And we talk about that all the time. But we have these points, these major points where we just talk past each other because in his framework, there's no concept of the idea of a, uh, a rebellion or betrayal of God or disobedience towards God, that the idea of sin really just doesn't exist categorically. 
So how can we be the same or how can our path be the same when we have major differences in even how we're perceiving things? But let me read you a quote um, from a, 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 a pastor who's in, um, pastor and writer who's in Austin, Texas, which if you've never been there is strikingly similar to Somerville. Have any people been to Austin? It's great, great food trucks. Um, it's, it's a great place. I got these little donuts there at like three in the morning from these food trucks that were just, they were delicious. Um, one donut reference a week, I'm done, okay. Um, let, let me quote this, this because I think what he says here is really insightful and it's helpful to try to wrap our heads around this. He says, to say that all paths lead to God is to say to all faiths this, your way isn't right, in fact, all of your ways are wrong, and my way is right. There isn't just one way to God, there are many ways, you're wrong and I'm right. Right, here's the thing. Here's the thing I really want us to take away. If this topic is really hard for you, hopefully you at least take away this, is that we really cannot avoid making a really big claim of exclusivity. We really just can't avoid that. Do you either believe that there is no God at all, you believe that Jesus is the way, or you believe um, that that it's the five pillars and devotion to to, to Allah, or you believe that um, nothing is true, or you believe all of them Uh, lead to God. Whatever you do, you're doing an exclusive claim that is saying, I'm right and you're wrong. And here's the thing. Here's why we have a hard time with this, because we do not know how to believe in something deeply without being rude to other people. We have such a hard time with that, which is why something that seems humble on the surface it ends up being very appealing, but when we look at it closely, it, it's not. Let me let me quote another writer, uh, more succinctly puts the same point. Um, a New York pastor says this, it's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that your way to think about all religions is right. Right? We, we can't avoid making exclusive claims. We, we can't do that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you really grasp the gospel of Jesus, when you really grasp that, it's impossible to hold to that exclusive belief and do it in an arrogant way. It's impossible. Now, you say, Claude, you say that's impossible. I met, you know, I met arrogant Christians on my way here. Um, not here, because our church is awesome, but maybe like at Stop and Shop or something. They're all over Stop and Shop, man. No, I'm just kidding. Um, right? Maybe, right? But uh, let's be honest. We, if you're here and you're a Christian, you've either been the arrogant Christian or the arrogant Christian was like your cousin or you were in the youth group with them or, or something like that, right? We encounter these people all the time. But here's the thing that, here's the claim that I really want to make is that if you really understand what Jesus is saying in this passage, if you really understand the gospel, the good news of being saved by grace, there's almost no way that you can hold that belief arrogantly over people who don't. And I want to unpack that in a second. But first, here's what I want to do. I want to show you that the gospel, while it is exclusive, Jesus, is, as he says here in his Acts 4.12 says in other passages, the gospel is this also, though. It's inclusively exclusive. It's an inclusive exclusive exclusivity. Excuse me. Inclusive exclusivity. Great Scrabble word for you, which actually won't work because it's two words. Ignore that. Um, but that's what the gospel is. And let me explain that to you. The gospel is inclusively exclusive because it's a salvation by grace through faith, not behavior modification. Because in Jesus, salvation, a relationship with God, comes by grace through faith, not by works, not by performance, not by voting record, not by whatever, which means it's inclusively exclusive. Here's what I mean by that. 
right? When people hear that Jesus is the one way, the reason it really, really bothers people is because it makes us think of all the times in our lives where we've been, where we've been shunned, we've been rejected, we've been put off. Those kids maybe wouldn't let us in our, their treehouse, whatever it might be. Like we've had these sharp moments of feeling unloved and pushed away, and that actually really hurts. And so when you come to the Bible, you come to Jesus and, and this, this amazing teacher who has a really hard sayings, and you encounter a hard saying, you begin to say, wait a second. How is this any different than what I experienced in high school? How is this any different than what I felt at that time when that person pushed me away? How is this any different? But when we look at it, we see that it actually is different. Though it is exclusive, it is different. And here's why. The gospel is an inclusive exclusivity because Jesus is declaring, I am, in fact, the only way to God. But here's the thing. The way is wide open to all. When people hear that Jesus is the way, they hear this. They think they hear this. Be good. Be moral. Act this way. If you're good enough, if you're moral enough, if you're strong enough, if you're devoted enough, if you're churchy enough, if you're this political enough or that political enough, then God will accept you. Then you're truly following Jesus. Then you're truly embraced by God. But that's contrary to the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus says, I live, I die, I rise so that you can be welcomed to God by faith as I take your penalty. And here's what you need to do. Here's the qualification. It is admitting that you have none and trusting in me and my mercy. Which means the gospel is for the weak, the gospel is for the strong, the gospel is for the moral, and the gospel is for the loose. The gospel is for the promiscuous, and the gospel is for the goody-two-shoes. The gospel is for political this, and the gospel is for political that. The way is open through Jesus. Right? Here's the thing. If you deal with other religious systems, here's the thing. They automatically turn people away because what will happen is you'll look at them and you'll say, well, if devotion is the key, I'm not a devoted person. You know me, I'm actually kind of lazy. So that automatically is something that I cannot do. But in Christ, he offers the way and says, whether you are good, whether you are bad, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you are skeptical or you're completely confused, I'm the way and through me you're accepted. Through nothing of what you've done, but everything that I've done. And that's why it's incredibly inclusive, though it is exclusive, which is why you see Christianity all over the world in so many different forms. Now let me show you, um, let me show you this. There's a way to believe in Christ that is authentic but not arrogant. And I think this is really important because I think this is part of why, um, part of why statements like I think all paths lead to God become so appealing because it seems easier to think about how that could produce a humility than believing in something as exclusive could. But there's a way to believe in Christ that's authentic but not arrogant. And, and here's how. If you understand the gospel, it's impossible to be, possible to be arrogant towards others who believe different because you understand you've been saved by grace. To believe in the gospel, to believe in Jesus, and to be arrogant towards other people is like being a student who was failing a class, you got a D or an F, and the teacher uh, says, hey, you know what? I talked with the principal, we're gonna change your grade to an A. We got permission, we're gonna just give you an A, you're gonna pass this class. And then you find that out, you get your report card, and you run back into the class and say, hey, I'm smarter than all of you. You guys are stupid. I'm smart. And your principal's in the corner shaking their head. They're like, are you, are you serious? You're the, you're the dumbest one here. You're the reason that... Do, do, do you, are you so stupid that you don't understand how you've come into this A? Do you not get how you are 
making it from where you were to a new place? Do you not get how your status is being changed? It's because of nothing that you've done. You're the dumbest person here. But there was mercy extended to you. If you are a Christian, that's what the gospel is all about. So to hold to Jesus and be arrogant to people who, do, who believe differently is to completely misunderstand the gospel. It's completely to misunderstand grace, which is the most fundamental concept of Christianity. So anywhere where you encounter a Christian who is arrogant, who thinks that they're better because of what they believe, because they have a relationship with God, though they should believe that that's exclusive because that's what Jesus says, there's no way to hold that exclusivity arrogantly because it's something that's been given to you by grace. You were so bad, you needed God to come down to earth and die for you. It doesn't get you much worse than that. But at the same time, you're not crushed because he loved you. Right? And let me, let me show you this. Let me, again, I want to quote um, Tim Keller who wrote the helpful book, Reason for God. He, he says this. He says the gospel it produces this humility that nothing else can produce in the same way. Here's what he says. He says, if you're a secular relativist, you're likely arrogant. You feel superior to people who are not secular relativists. If you're a religious person who believes you're saved because you're good, you're going to feel superior to the secular person or to the person from another religion or to the irreligious person. Right? Because your identity is built in being good and they're not and you are, so you automatically will feel better. But, he says, if you're a Christian, you're saved by grace. And when you talk to an atheist or a Buddhist, you know that, they're, that this person is likely better morally than you. You're not saved because you're better than them. You're saved because of grace. Does that make sense? Are you hearing that? So what he's saying is when you realize that you've been saved by grace, you've been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus that he hints at in this passage, you're able to see people who believe differently and not feel superior to them because you're the person that had the failing report card. God swooped in and gave mercy to you. So arrogance can't coexist with that reality. And wherever it does, your heart is off. So my, my encouragement, if you're here, you're part of this church, please, please let us be these type of people, these gospel people. Um, thankfully, I think we really are. But let us be this because when people see you hold a real conviction with real humility, they take notice and great conversations begin to happen respectfully. Right? So let, let's totally be that. Let's totally be that. So, so now that we've looked at a couple of these, um, a couple of these observations um, or uh, interactions with these um, objections, I want to turn to the last couple of verses in this passage. Um, and what I want to do is uh, I want to look at um, I want to look at the last verse um, verse 11 I want to look at the other ones but um, I don't have time to do so um, the thing I want to point out here is that the first verse that we looked at Jesus says believe in God believe also in me he's saying that to believe essentially he's saying that I'm divine I'm sent by God as a way for you to be restored to God but to believe that a God exists really, in the Christian view, does you no good because believing that there's a God exists does nothing. You need the rescuer, the one that he sent. You need Jesus. And what Jesus says at the end of this passage, um, he says this, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. I wish we could really walk through these. Here's essentially what Jesus is doing. is He's saying, 
He's just said, hey, I'm the way. You're seeing me that I'm God. And his encouragement throughout this passage repeated numerous times, verse 1, verse 10, verse 11, he's saying believe. He's saying believe. Here's the thing. Jesus as the way is meant to comfort us, right? It's meant to bring us into intimacy with God for, for every person here who would just turn to Jesus and trust. But it's also meant to push us from a stage of investigating Jesus into belief in Jesus so that we can be restored to God. That's what it's, it's meant to push us one way or the other. Because here's the reality of it. Think about this with Jesus. Here's essentially what happens with Jesus. How many of you have siblings? Okay, man, everybody. I'm like the only one. Even you, man, I thought you were gonna be like my, not have siblings with me, but you raised your hand in the last second. Okay, great. Um, so almost all of you in this room have siblings, right? Imagine one of your siblings, right? After, imagine you, if you're not 30, imagine you're 30. After 30 years with your sibling, you go down to Harvard Square and you find them out there preaching and um, saying, I am God in the flesh. I'm here. And you find that they've actually amassed a bit of a following. That they got 12 people that are really close and then they got a bunch of other people that are kind of like, well, this is a very curious thing. And so they're, they're, they're around and watching. And people begin to follow your sibling as God incarnate. You're going to there's going to be no middle ground for you, right? You're, you're going to have about five minutes to mull that over, and then you've got to make a decision, right? Your immediate decision is going to be um, sibling A has lost it, and I'm going to look up the number for the, uh, for the uh, psych ward, and we're going to call them quickly and you know, kind of get this under wraps so that I can continue on my job and not be fired for being associated with them, right? You're, you're going to react drastically. There's really no middle ground. Jesus goes from a life of obscurity to proclaiming that he's divine, Backing up with, with miracles that, that, are, that, are, that, that seem to be historically verified with, with good evidence, right? So, so there's this way that you have to step to him, and you have to investigate, and you have to wrestle, you have to look at it, but eventually you have to make a decision. And what Jesus is doing by saying that, hey, I'm the way, believe in me, believe that I am one with the Father, believe that I'm divine, what he's trying to do is he's trying to push everybody who hears those words and everybody after subsequently who would hear them, he's trying to push them from the stage of investigation to the stage of decision, hopefully believe. That's what he's trying to do. Right? And he ends by saying, believe on account of the works themselves. And the great work that he would do at the end of John's gospel was that he would die and resurrect as a sign of the, the way has actually been opened, the way has been done. He has made the way for us to be brought home to God for that longing to be satisfied and for us to be welcomed into relationship with God. So I want to encourage you as you think about Jesus as the way, which can be a really hard topic for many, as you think about that, I encourage you to think on this more. Talk with somebody that you came with. But my encouragement is that don't just stay in the place of investigating, but look at what Jesus is, what he's done to bring you back to God, fully known and fully loved through him, and, and believe in him as he calls and encourages in this passage. Believe in him. And let me end with this, this branch illustration that I gave last week, right? If you're falling off a cliff and you see that there's a branch there that can save you, and in your mind you're like, that branch can probably save me, but you don't ever reach out and grab it, the branch does you no good, right? You could get there logically and say, you know what? There's a 99.6% chance that that branch will save me if I grab it like this. But if I grab it like this, there's a 70% chance it will save me, right? At some point, you just got to grab the branch. Because if you don't personally make that decision, it's not going to save you from, from falling and getting harmed, injured, or, you know, depending on how big the cliff is, dying. But if you see that branch and you say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if that branch can really, I mean, I don't know how sturdy that branch is. But you know what? I, I got this split second. Um, I got this chance right now. I'm going to grab it. And if you grab it and the branch, in fact, is sturdy and does save you, doesn't matter that you had doubts or questions. The branch saves. 
And here's what, I, here's what I mean by that, why I bring that up, is because the key, what Jesus is holding up, the key in Christianity is not the strength of your faith, but the object of it. That you can have doubts, you can have a million questions, you can have all the questions we have through this series and have even more, but it's simply through faith in Jesus, an informed faith that saves, that brings us home to God here and eternally. It's not a faith that has every answer ever, ever covered for all time. So my encouragement is that you would heed Jesus' words here, know that we can be fully loved um, and completely known simply through trusting in him as the gospel is inclusively exclusive by his grace and extended to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for, um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for caring for us. Um, thank you that you did uh, make it uh, the way and a way, that you didn't leave us um, to ourselves to figure it out or to search with longing forever. Um, but that there is a way that we can know you and you've opened up that way through Christ. And so, God, I just pray for, uh, first off, this is a big question. Um, and, God, I just thank you for the spots where um, it has been helpful and faithful and clear. And, God, I pray that you would allow us to respond um, in worship towards you. God, help us each here to take the next step that you would have for us. If for some of us, that's continued investigation, first-time investigation, asking more questions, God. Would you uh, let us... Um, not feel like we can't do that, but would you actually um, help us to do that and direct us to the right people, right resources, right conversations to ask those questions freely and openly. And then, God, for um, people here who uh, are following Jesus, love Jesus, and trust Jesus, God, where we are thinking that we have to um, hide our vulnerability to be acceptable to you, where we have to cover our sins to be acceptable to you right now, God, would you remind us of the endless grace that you've given um, through Jesus and what he's done on the cross and in the gospel? So God, we pray that you would lift up Jesus and draw us uh, to him even as we sing in response now. It's in your name we pray.